morning, listeners, and welcome to the NK News podcast, the only English language podcast devoted exclusively to North Korean issues. I'm your host, Jacko Zwetslut. By day, I work as Director of Business Innovation at HMP Law, a Korean full-service law firm. But by night, I read about North Korea, or the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, as it is officially known. And I will be your host of this new weekly podcast produced exclusively for NK News. Today, our very first guest is Professor Andrei Lankov, Director of the Korea Risk Group and Professor at Kungmin University. Welcome, Professor Lankov. Well, thank you for inviting me here. Thank you for coming here. It's a pleasure to have you. Now, you've recently come back uh, from a trip to Yanji along yes. China's long border with North mm-hmm. Korea. And uh, we hope that you're going to share with us some of the insights that you learned while you were there. But first, I thought I would start by asking you about your academic background. What makes you a specialist on North Korea? Well, I'm Russian, as you probably see from my heavily accented English. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I was born in Leningrad in 1963, so 54 years old, not young, unfortunately. And like pretty much all career specialists in Russia of my age, of my generation, I did not want to study Korea. Uh-huh. Because Korea was not a part of a world picture back then in the 70s. North Korea was seen as a comical, really comical hyper Stalinist dictatorship. Uh, you know, the glossy propaganda magazines were everywhere. Yep. And pretty much nothing made the, as much damage to the international reputation of North Korea as their own propaganda. <laughs> And South Korea was completely unknown, but assumed to be something like, you know, some Latin American country Mm -hmm. uh, under developed dictatorship, under the control of brutal generals on on pay from the CIA. Uh, So, well, I began to do China. And uh, it was basically the decision of the dean who wanted to establish the Korean department that I should study Korea. I could say no, but postgraduate, a prospect of going for postgraduate studies and maybe getting an academic job was way too, you know, attractive. So I couldn't say no. I accepted the proposal, went to North Korea uh, as an exchange student in 84-85 to Kimerson University. was much interested by what, by what I saw. Mm-hmm. Uh, back then decided to do North Korea. Sorry, were there a lot of uh, international students at Kimerson University then? At that time, among the... Well, there was roughly 20 students. Okay. And studying language. It was a one-year language course. Yeah. Yeah, altogether maybe about well few dozens, maybe few dozens at that time. Okay. Uh, so um, well, uh, then came back, did my PhD on the 17th century Korean history, uh, but always wanted to do North Korea and yeah. began to do North Korea since the late 80s. Fantastic. Okay, that's a great summary. Uh, when were you last in North Korea itself? Uh, 2016, uh-huh. uh, because applied last year and they said that they cannot accept me because they hate my slanderous and, uh, you know, writings where I touch the great blah, 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 blah. Anyway, do you, do you the, was... the 
Uh, Do you think that was more a question of timing? I mean, they have had other people who have written worse things about North Korea over the decades. Oh, yeah. They've allowed them visas to come in. Oh, they are quite moody. Uh-huh. And uh, they still like something I say. They dislike something I say. They hate something I say. I say they love something I say. Uh-huh. I don't give a damn. Uh, uh-huh. So, actually, especially because it's advisable to go there, but a few people realize that by going to North Korea, you can learn a lot, but uh-huh. not as much as you would learn in any other country because the level of control over foreign visitors is unprecedented yeah. has always been will you be applying to go again this year or not i'm inclined to think so okay. uh, we'll see what's going to happen happen this year because this year is going to be very tough very tense Now, as I mentioned earlier, you recently went to Yanji in uh, northeast China, yep. along the border with North Korea. Why is that a useful place to go and visit if you want to learn about North Korea? Uh, to start with, it's a place where you can talk to the North Korean, both uh, refugees who are living there and the North Korean officials and the North Korean students. And they are far more frank than they would be in China because in China, uh, sorry, in North Korea, because in North Korea, they assume that every single step is controlled and watched. And if, if they talk to the foreigners, usually they are not allowed to talk to the foreigners and they know it's risky. But even if they talk to the foreigners, they basically are very careful with what they say. And it's not the case in Yanti, yeah. in Dandun, you can talk to the North Koreans with a measure of freedom, which is very good. Uh, you can discuss things. And what is also important, there is a large number of the Chinese businessmen, Chinese academics. We should not underestimate the Chinese academics in Yanti. They are very knowledgeable people, not widely known, but very knowledgeable. So it's a good place to talk, go and to talk about career and North Korea. So basically my pretty much annual trips there, every time I'm coming from the border areas, I learn something new and reasonably important. Just, uh, I'm trying to imagine myself in Yanji. I've never been to Yanji, but when you are there, how do you actually go about approaching a North Korean informant? Do you just Uh, you have to a coffee shop or how do you no, do that? No, 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 no. So, first of all, right now, well, say 10 years ago, 15 years ago, when I came there first time, it was almost 15 years ago, 2005, you still could basically walk into, well, maybe not a coffee shop, more likely market. Coffee yeah. shops are expensive. Okay. And back then, North Koreans usually would not waste their money on coffee shops. You could probably uh, get into a market, it's something what I used to do, and come across a North Korean very soon. But this is in ancient history now. Mm. You have to have recommendations. You, you basically okay. use your own networks. You, trust, you ask people who trust you. Yeah. They ask people who trust them. And it's most common way. There are also other situations, other ways I would probably not discuss. So you said that Yanji is a city that, um, where you can find North Korean refugees escaping from North Korea, but also... Yes, much less North- now, but you still sometimes, yeah. And also North Korean officials. Yes. Um, that seems like a, a, a potentially volatile or dangerous mix. Um, obviously, I don't imagine you would find them in the same place as each of other. Of course but not. The refugees, are they very shy about talking to outsiders? Uh, well, if they have recommendations uh, and if they, they believe that security is reasonably good, yeah. they are talking. 
And again, I'm not talking about politics usually. If politics is sure. discussed, it's good, but basically daily life, economics, everything. Okay. But uh, explosive mix, well, we have to keep in mind that refugees, just to make clear, this time, this trip, I have not seen a, seen a single refugee. Uh-huh. Uh, last time I did, uh, but their numbers is very small now. And there are, used to be a lot, not anymore. And why is that? Why is that, are there less refugees now than there have been? A uh, few reasons. Usually people will mention that uh, control on the border is much tougher than before, and it's true. Mm-hmm. Uh, starting from, I remember the days in, say, 2005, 2008, when the border with China was essentially unprotected. Mm. Uh, so there are no fences, no patrols, no nothing right. on the Chinese side of the border. Yeah. Whoever could go to the border and stay near the river and in winter when the river is frozen, I'm talking two main same is applicable to Yalu, and when the river is frozen, theoretically it was quite possible to walk to North Korea. Oh. North Korea was guarded, North Korea uh, North Koreans were much better in border control, but Chinese didn't care. It was absolutely zero. It was essentially an open border, as well protected as, say, border between United States and Canada. Right. But it's not the case anymore. Starting from 2011, Chinese began to build fence, and mm. they have built a long fence along the entire border. It's, well, actually quite... Not well done, mm-hmm. so you can get through, uh, but it does exist. And many more soldiers, and this time if you go to the border, you can be sure that your uh, IDs are likely to be checked many times in the checkpoints, and soldiers who are manning checkpoints will probably take pictures of your passport, of your ID, very carefully, and there is a probability that they will just prevent you from going along the border. I managed to travel a lot along the border, but people say that starting from last year it has become impossible. I didn't try this time uh, Uh to go far away from... uh, Yes, I just went from Yanzi straight to the border to Trumain, where uh, the Chinese control was unusually tough. I was followed openly and so on. So So when you say it's impossible to to follow the border, you mean that you cannot just walk along the fence? No, no, you can can walk along the fence in Uh Tumain, for example. But in the past, I used to rent a car, not with with a driver, of course, you had to have a driver, and traveled long distances, Uh hundreds of kilometers, basically upstream and downstream, essentially to the the Russian border, to the Uh place, or nearly to the place where too many flows into the sea, you cannot reach it because there is a short kind of uh, uh, Russian uh, piece of Russian territory which basically blocks Chinese access to the sea. But um, I went there and I went upstream and uh, it was possible. What makes that impossible now? Uh, Soldiers, patrols, checkpoints, Uh, they stop foreigners. uh, They stop foreigners. They say so. I'm not sure. I have not tried. I don't know. People say that this is the case now. I'm not sure. Okay. I have not checked. All right. So we, we know that there are many less uh, refugees now in Yanji than there were. Yes, many more. Uh, you, well, because first control. But it's not the major reason. 
Uh, you, we were talking about border control ah. on, but there is another reason, yeah. and actually much more border control on the North Korean side okay. uh, too. But the major reason is not border controls. The major reason is that life is getting better in North Korea, significantly better, and uh, including the in the borderland areas which used to be very poor. Mm-hmm. Yes, they are poor still by standards of say China, but they are doing much better than before. So people still feel less need to run away. What are the major cities or towns on the North Korean side um, facing Yanji? Uh, there is a small town, Namyan, which is just in front of Tumen, and in the reasonably close vicinity you have Haverion, you have Hesan, you have Aoji, so reasonably large mining towns. And Busan, which is not very close, but still, you know, a couple of hundred kilometers, maybe a bit less, actually less, from Yanzi, maybe 150, which, is, uh, which are major centers of the mining industry. Okay. Now, so let's get into this particular trip. Um, can you tell us a little bit about who you met uh, on this most recent trip to Yanji? Uh, probably I would not name names no. because it's not a good idea, I think. But what kind of people? Uh, kind of people, academics, so businessmen, local businessmen, academics, foreigners, foreign experts, uh, Chinese, uh, so quite a lot of people. And many of them ethnic Koreans, of course, with Chinese citizenship, and basically they see themselves as Chinese citizens. Yeah, we should explain a little bit for the, the listeners there. What is the ethnic makeup? I mean, Yanji is a Chinese city. But, Not uh, exactly. Uh, it's, no, a Chinese city because it's a part of the People's Republic of China, yes. but something like 30% of the population, used to be more, uh, are ethnic Koreans. Right. And uh, because of massive labor migration to South Korea, they are very rich now. Uh, Yanzi is, uh, for such a small city and basically underdeveloped part of China, is remarkably rich. And it's probably the brightest lead city in nighttime, the brightest lead city I've ever seen. Uh, More bright than Seoul. Yes, yes, wow. yes, yes. Because in Seoul you have those, you know, shops, everything. But in uh, yeah, in Yanzi, even the buildings, the facade, the wow. buildings are always buildings. with headlights. Yeah, all kind living, uh, you know, apartments and the yeah. com- official buildings, everything. Because they are lit with colorful lights. Mm. It's quite important, impressive. Some people will probably say it's kitschy, but I like it. Mm-hmm. And uh, anyway, so it's uh, quite a booming city. And every time you come there, you see that it's getting better. Old, uh, you know, brick buildings from the 1930s, which looked quite, fr- frankly, quite bad. Do you know approximately yeah. the size of the stable population of Yanji? A quarter million something, I would suspect. I'm not million, sure. Yeah. Maybe somebody should look at Wikipedia. I would say about a quarter million maybe 300,000. By the Chinese standards, it's a small city. Now, you, you mentioned just before that uh, there's been a lot of labor migration of uh, local residents of Yanji to South Korea yes, seeking work. huge. Some of them, I imagine, probably go back to Yanji at some nearly point after all, some Nearly years. all. Uh, because uh, South Korea is a very uh, unhospitable environment right. for migrants unless they are successful white, uh, basically not white, from the developed world. Race is not that important. The return of of Yanji people from South Korea to Yanji, does that lead to an indirect contact between South Korean culture and and economics and 
And North Korean business people? Yes, of course. And uh, in direct contact too, because in many cases through Yanzi and Dandun, which is another part of the same border. Border is very long. It's about 1,400 kilometers. It's another end of the border, Dandun. Yeah. Dandun near the Yellow Sea. Um, uh, there you, you basically have North and South Korean businesses secretly cooperating. Wow. Because uh, it's has, it has to be done very carefully. But money, well, profits are good, so people are doing it anyway. Less so now because Chinese now are squeezing North Koreans out of China. Uh, it's a remarkable squeeze, unprecedented right now. Could you uh, flesh out a little bit what do you mean by uh, cooperating secretly, North Korean and South Korean business? Just business, you know, you are trading with seafood, you uh-huh. you are North Korean businessman. Um, seafood, basically fishing industry in North Korea is overwhelmingly private. Yeah. So you, you buy catch, uh, you export it to China and you you resell this, I don't know, shellfish mm. or squid or whichever to a South Korean business and then it's sold in South Korea. Uh-huh. Of course, it's never mentioned that it's actually from North Korea, officially mm. it's Chinese or whichever. Yeah. And it's a common business, especially in Dandun, you're just reselling it. Okay, well, um, and you also just mentioned now the, uh, the Chinese uh, sanction squeeze on North Korea. Yes. What did you see in your most recent visit to Yanji about how those sanctions are impacting? Um, and Chinese North are Korea? serious about sanctions, much more serious than has it has ever been than ever before. Uh, but I saw the Chinese restaurants, sorry, the North Korean restaurants, which used to be quite numerous in China, in the borderland cities, are all closed. All of them? Well, there is one or two exceptions, but these restaurants, they have changed registration. Mm. So technically, they are not owned by the North Koreans, okay. but by some Chinese or third country nationals. Yeah. But otherwise, uh, the basic principle is, in early January, all enterprises which were completely or partially owned by the North Koreans in China were closed. Ah. Uh, so it's all. So, uh, so no hotels, no coffee shops? There was well, actually one hotel. Actually, there is a very small number of North Korean hotels worldwide. My understanding is that probably there is only one hotel owned by the North Koreans overseas, and it's not in Yanzi. Uh, so, but all these restaurants were closed, yeah. and some other companies were closed. And people who used to work there, they have been essentially kicked out. What is also important uh, that uh, the Chinese investors, uh, Chinese investment to North Korea are frozen too. Uh, There was a number of the Chinese largely small businesses who invested money to North Korea. It's sometimes seafood, Mm -hmm. sometimes, uh, you know, consumption goods production, but overwhelmingly it's light industry, like basically garments, clothes, running shoes, name it. Uh, They hired North Korean workers, and it made perfect sense, because in China, on the Chinese side of the border, you would pay at least 200, more likely $300 per month. And in North Korea, girls are happy if they are paid $30 a month. And it's seen as a good, solid salary in North Korea, uh, $35. So you have a great deal of saving on the labor cost. And many Chinese in recent years were using it. They were opening factories in North Korea, largely in Rason Special Economic Zone. And all these factories... I don't know how many of them, dozens, maybe many dozens, 
uh, maybe even more, are all closed now. Oh. Uh, yes, and uh, some people who used to trade with North Korea, they have their merchandise essentially sort of stuck in North Korea. Oh. Say you, I, it's a case I know that somebody bought seafood, a large amount of seafood, and it's still in refrigerating facilities inside North Korea, and there is no way to get it. And money has been paid, payment has been made, and this Chinese businessman cannot get it. The uh, the factories you mentioned, uh, yeah. uh, Chinese-owned factories in North Korea, producing garments and other light economic uh, yeah. light industry, uh, is that actually like? Uh, are those factories in breach of sanctions? Is that why they have to be closed? Or? Yes, uh, under the current sanctions regime, they have to be closed. Okay. But I strongly suspect that Chinese are going further than the UN Security Council resolution requires. And why would they do that? Mm, they are terrified by Mr. Trump. Uh, it's quite simple. Uh, because China was reluctant to enforce sanctions. Yeah. Because in the past, China faced an unpleasant choice between two bad options. On one hand, China was uh, not happy about a nuclear North Korea. It was annoyed by the North Korean nuclear ambitions, by the North Korean brinksmanship, uh, which created, well, reasons or pretext for the US military presence in the region and so on. And of course, China did worry about proliferation. However, the second option was even worse. Had China introduced really tough sanctions, uh, it would probably, not necessarily, but probably lead to a significant economic crisis inside North Korea. A possible outcome of such a crisis would be political crisis and revolution, followed by regime collapse, and either unification of Korea under the South Korean control, mm -hmm. which China would not like, or if even worse, a Syria or Libya-like situation in North Korea, with, you know, warlords fighting one another and kind of civil war in a nuclear-armed country, which is even worse option. Therefore, facing a choice between a bad and very bad option, China naturally used to choose bad option, that is nuclear North Korea, and being unhappy about it, it still did not participate in the sanctions. Now the situation changed. Now, uh, judging by the indicate by some signals from the White House, Americans, or to be more precise, President Trump seriously considers a military strike against North Korea. If this is indeed the case, China faces three options. First, a nuclear North Korea, bad. Second, collapsing North Korea, North Korean state of war. It's worse. But a real international war near the Chinese borders. It's the worst option. So what does China do? They introduced really comprehensive sanctions and use it as a leverage. They basically tell Americans, look, don't shoot. Don't shoot now. We are very tough on North Korea. Sanctions will start biting soon. North Koreans will basically come on their knees begging for, you know, some clemency. Of course, it's not true. North Koreans will never come on their knees. Mm. But Chinese diplomats have reasons, have reasons to make such claims as long as they're serious about sanctions. And Are you saying that, that uh, Chinese diplomats or Chinese leaders 
know that North Korea won't beg for clemency, but they're saying that it will, or do they actually yes. believe North Korea might? Uh, Some may, might believe, but most people just saying, because otherwise there is a probability that Americans will start shooting. Right. And an American strike preemptive, or whichever name it in some nice way, American attack against North Korea, yep. will provoke a North Korean response, followed by a massive war near the Chinese borders. So Chinese uh, cooperation with um, with UN and other sanctions, uh, you're saying, is merely a uh, uh, a tactic employed by China to uh, to pacify President Trump. I would say so. Yeah. And once again, I would like to be uh, quite clear. Um, it makes perfect sense uh, because if uh, President Trump is really considering a new uh, kind of military option, yeah. there is a high probability that his actions will provoke a massive war in East Asia with a large number of casualties. A broader war uh, involving North Korea and Involving other North Korea, South Korea, United States at least, yeah. and South Korea is likely to, sorry, North Korea is likely to be quietly supported by China. I don't think China will really intervene in favor of North Korea, but it will probably provide North Korea with weapons, with logistical support, intelligence, name it. So... Would Japan be involved too? How? No, of course not. Of course well, not. I mean, no, I have heard scenarios under which North Korea, if attacked by the United States, might also attack Japan. It's possible to if, bring it in. if it happens, uh, but it's not in the in, uh, in North Korean interest. Why would it? Why would North Korea want to get even another country fighting itself? Feelings of anger and resentment towards uh, Japan. I don't. Uh, what's North Korea is run by smart, cynical, Machiavellian people. Yeah. What are feelings of uh, uh, anger of revenge? They admire Japanese culture, at least pop culture. Don't worry, their children are watching Japanese anime. Are they? Of course. Teenagers, they listen to American music. How long has that been going on with the, uh, the Japanese decades, 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 decades. Oh. The elite uh, have some level of patriotism and commitment to the state, is true, but don't expect them to believe this simplistic and primitive nationalist myth. They are for the common people. Okay, but do you not feel that uh, common people can be motivated by these simple messages of nationalism? Of course they are, of course they are. It's why it has been used by countless governments since times immemorial. Of course they are, it works. Tribalism is basically in our genes. But the problem is that when decision makers uh, believe this tribalism too much, yeah. they make mistakes, and well, Darwinian selection actually exterminate elites which take nationalist rubbish too seriously. <laughs> All right, let's go back, back to Yanji. Um, can you tell us more about uh, what you learned or saw or experienced on this most recent trip? Uh, well, I would say uh, essentially uh, Chinese and North Koreans are squeezed out. Uh, uh, enterprises are closed. What is very important is that Chinese are uh, deporting North Korean workers. Not really deporting, it's more complicated and a bit mm -hmm. less tough. Uh, once, Is it a matter of not extending visas? Yes, yes, yes. Once their visas expire, yeah. they are not getting any extension, they have to leave. Mm. So in a matter of, well, year or two, there will be not a single North Korean worker remaining in China, or for that matter Russia, which means that North Koreans will lose, North Korean government will lose a serious source of income. And also just, just to put that in context, yes. um, so a year ago, uh, do we have an approximate number on how many North Korean workers there were in China and Russia? 
about uh, a year ago. In Russia, it would be about thirty thousand, give or take. In uh, maybe a bit more than thirty thousand. In China, it's much more complicated. I would say about forty thousand, and maybe another ten, twenty thousand across other countries, largely but not exclusively Middle East. Yeah. So the maximum number was maybe close to 100,000, likely it was a bit lower. I would say 80,000 worldwide, definitely, maybe a bit more. And of those 100,000 or so, how many... Less, I think, a bit less. How how many do you think have already been sent back to North Korea? Well, I don't know, maybe 10%, 15%. Okay, so it'll take some time, you said a year or so, uh, to get all of them sent back. Yes, yes. And what will be the net effect of that on on the North Korean Uh, economy? First of all, they will lose some revenue. Uh, we don't know exactly how much they are earning through this labor. A few hundred million a year, uh, which is noticeable income for North Korea. Not yeah. huge, but noticeable. And on top of that, you have also the families of the workers, because we should not forget. Even though the Western media love to portray them as modern-day slaves, they are extremely privileged people. Uh, to go to work as a construction at a construction site, twelve hours a day, somewhere in a dirty Chinese neighbor, no, the Russian more likely they don't sell construction send construction workers to China. Uh-huh. Uh, in some small dirty Chinese town, you have to be first. First, you have to be, uh, you have to be, spotless back family background. You have to belong to the trusted part of the society. If you have any problematics, any problematic relative, somebody, you know, your second uncle make a joke about party 25 years ago, you will never, you you are not allowed to go. Second, you have to pay a bribe. Uh, Because in order to become a slave, so to say, you have to pay a large bribe, which is, well, roughly an annual income or two annual income of the average North Korean family. Right. For Russia, it would be $500 roughly. For China, it would be probably two or $300. For Middle is that East, because Russia is more uh, desirable as a place to yes, go and work? Yes, better money. Better money, more freedom. Right. In uh, China, payment is they are paid less yeah. and they are under constant control in most cases workers are not just allowed to venture outside their you know place of employment their factories in Russia they are pretty free to walk around why do you think that is? Uh, because they believe, uh, North Koreans believe with good reason that uh, there are so many South Koreans in China and there are well-tested ways of defection or ref- kind of going away from China via large South- Southeast Asia, also via Mongolia. So they are afraid that many workers will defect or just run away because defection implies something political. So there are, it's usually non-political. But um, in Russia, it's more complicated. It still happens, but it's more complicated. So they don't control the workers. Okay. Uh, now, that's, we've, we've just talked about the North Korean workers uh, who are dispatched to China and Russia. What about North Korean traders and market sellers? Are they still able to go to Yanji to buy and sell? Uh, yes, but there is a very tough control. Basically, it's very difficult to move any significant amount of merchandise across the border. So, so no you, trucks? No, there are some trucks, and trucks are crossing the border, but um, you cannot move large amount, large quantities of merchandise. No. And it means that, well, people are still going, of course, but it's much more... Um, it's They're not making 
as much money as they used to, they're probably hardly making money at all. Now, how do we put that together with... You said earlier that things are getting much better in North Korea economically. Yes. Yeah. We now hear that uh, less North Koreans are able to go overseas yes. and work and trade. Yeah. So uh, are things going to get worse again in North Korea economically? Probably, yes. Almost definitely, yes. They're going to get worse. All but throughout will... North Korea or just in the border regions near Everywhere, China? of course, everywhere. Uh, it's a question of time before the sanctions will have a serious adverse impact on the living standards of the population. Uh, it's uh, we ca- basically it's impossible to predict first when will it happen. Yeah. I would say later this year, uh, 2018. Uh, and it's also impossible to predict how serious the impact is going to be. I know some people who are optimistic. They say that North Korean economy is probably s- self-sufficient to some extent. They say that the current North Korean economy is essentially capitalist, market-driven, based on private property, which is not officially recognized openly, but practically is well recognized and much respected under Kim Jong-un. So the new North Korean bourgeoisie, the new North Korean capitalists will find ways to survive and feed the country. It's an optimistic view I do not probably share. Hmm. Uh, in this case, I'm probably with a majority view, and the majority view is that in near future, in few months' time, maybe a year, uh, the living standards of North Koreans will start going down. It's important to keep in mind that the last five years has been a time of remarkable economic growth in North Korea. Living standards for a majority of population, not only for the Pyongyang elite, for, but for the entire population, have increased significantly. So the growth last year was estimated by the optimists to be 7%, Mm. pessimists 4%. So it's quite high. And it's pretty much the same growth they have maintained for since the emergence of Kim Jong-un. He's very pro-market, very pro-capitalist. He's probably most pro-capitalist leader North Korea has seen since, well, the 1930s. Because if last... A generation of the Japanese colonial administrators were not particularly pro-market and pro-capitalist. Uh. Compared to Kim Jong-un, they were very anti-market. So, I mean, the Japanese officials of the 40s and late 1930s. Having said that, uh, so this growth was quite remarkable, and it's one of the reasons why Kim Jong-un tends to be quite popular with population, one of two major reasons, and other is nuclear weapons. You said that uh, North Korea is not going. The North Korean government will not be brought uh, by sanctions to, uh, uh, you know, as yes. you said, to its knees. It will yes. not be brought to to seek a, a deal with America through no. sanctions. No. So, um, what will be the effect of a, a decrease or a downturn in uh, living standards in North Korea, uh, given that the North Korean government will probably not change its policies? Yeah. I see three possibilities. First, uh, North Koreans will just suffer and perhaps even die quietly. As we saw in the 1990s. As we saw in the 1990s. Because uh, North Koreans are seriously terrified of government and they have pretty much no horizontal connections. They have no kind of, you know, groups or social structures which would become the basis of resistance. They don't have churches, they don't have even clan structures, everything has disappeared a long time ago. And uh, so it's the first option, they are just dying quietly. 
The second option, which is probably also likely, are localized riots. Uh, so we'll have some North localized Korea. riots. Yes, like North in Korea. a marketplace or something. Yes, yeah, uh, some outbreaks, unplanned, spontaneous, maybe quite violent and bloody, which are likely to be suppressed by the government forces. Have we seen this before? Uh, on a limited scale, we had a chain of market riots between 2004 and 2010, when the North Korean government unsuccessfully tried to reverse the growth of market capitalist forces and wanted unsuccessfully to revive the old Soviet-style centrally planned economy. It was a chain of reforms, all ended in complete failure, but all these attempts provoked some irritation and there were localized market riots. Mm-hmm. One of such riots, it was not market riots, it was on a soccer match, international soccer match, was even filmed by the foreign media crew which were present there. This was the, uh, the match against Iran? Yes, yes, in, uh, yeah, yeah, yes, when the people were outraged by the, because of the decision of the referee. And, yeah. But why do you link that disturbance to uh... because it's disturbance it's a riot it shows that people can dis- uh, show their disrespect and in that particular case they did it in spite of presence of the foreign media with camera crews and everything having said that mm-hmm. it's a second option localized riots i think the government will suppress it why because largely because uh, of uh, the government can rely on security forces uh, the, it's not. It's very often overlooked that North Korea has a major difference with your typic, from your typical dictatorship somewhere in the Middle East or Eastern Europe in the 70s and so on. The North Korean elite has no exit option. Because what happened when the Soviet Union collapsed? Who is running Soviet Union now? Former Soviet states, 15 post-Soviet states of who are presidents and owners of the major corporations and cabinet ministers in, say, not only in Russia, which is quite unpopular in the West, but in such cute pro-Western countries like, I don't know, Georgia or Baltic states. Who are these people? What did they used to do? What did they do under the Soviet regime? They, they used to work for uh, the Soviet apparatus. Nearly all of them. Uh, uh, last year I made a bit of calculation, it's probably a bit different now, but out of 15 post-Soviet presidents, yeah. 11 were either former bosses of the same countries as former first secretaries, yeah. <laughs> uh, or children of former bosses, or medium and high-ranking officials, or uh, at least were born in families of high-level officials, right. including people who are normally seen by the Western media as good, cute, democratic politicians. Yes. And if you look at the composition of people who are running, say, who are owning the new industries, you see even more remarkable picture. It's in Eastern Europe, is most countries, not all, not all, but most East European countries are very similar. North Korea is not going to be such. North Korea, because South Korea exists. Yeah, yeah. They are afraid that regime collapse will mean that South Koreans will get in and take over everything. So, you know, if you are, say, in, 
I don't know, Bulgarian police in 1985. Yeah. After regime collapse, you say that you have secretly always hated communism and you get promotion <laughs> in the police. It's not going to happen to the North Korean police, North Korean security, North Korean, even North Korean military. So these people are likely to fight if they are cornered. And if there is a riot, they will shoot because they know that well, probably because they will believe that if they don't shoot, yeah. they and their families are going to be slaughtered by the lynching mobs. So it's sh- shoot or be shot, basically. Yes, absolutely. And this is second option. And the third second. option is a full-scale revolution leading to a collapse, a chaos, followed by either quick uh, sort of uh, uh, quick uh, takeover by the South Koreans yeah. or very complicated intervention by all neighboring countries like Russia, like especially China, all these countries getting involved. Let's just, um, uh, I mean, obviously we're being speculative here, but you've mentioned three possible outcomes of uh, a downturn in uh, living standards and the Mm -hmm. North Korean economy. So what... um, what percentage of probability would you ascribe to those three choices? Let's go through in order. So the first one, you said North Koreans will suffer in silence as they did in the 1990s. Uh-huh. How probable or likely do you think uh, that Most is? likely. I would, say if, uh, I would say something like, you know, I don't know, uh, 40, uh, 30, 30, or 40, 35, 25, something like that. Most likely is that they Percent will suffer. probability. Yes, yeah. yes. Most likely they will suffer in silence. Yeah. There is a probability of localized riots. And there is a finally a re- relatively small, I would say, 20-30% probability of a regime collapse. Ah, okay. So 40% probability of uh, suffering and silence, similar percentage for... Uh, maybe a bit less. Localized for riots. riots with bloody crackdowns. Yes. And then a small, a much smaller percentage, maybe 20%. Smaller, not that small. Smaller percentage for, for a regime collapse. Now, we are um, recording this uh, interview on uh, Thursday the 8th of... Uh, February, just the day mm-hmm. before the uh, opening ceremony of the Olympics, mm-hmm. uh, at which uh, Kim Jong-nam, the uh, ceremonial head of state for North Korea, and uh, Kim Yo-jong, the younger sister of Kim Jong-un, are supposed to be here for the uh, for the opening ceremony tomorrow. And today, after this, or perhaps even during the recording of this interview, there will be mm-hmm. uh, a large military parade in North Korea. Um, can you tell us about what you expect to be seeing in the next week or two, or, or today or tomorrow? Well, if parade is going to happen, and I'm inclined it will happen, it will be a good gesture to show, look, we are a basically nuclear power, we are proud of our military might, of our uh, capability to, you know, wipe out the city of Washington from the state of face of Earth. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, we are engaged in the international community, we are participating in the Olympic Games, we are a nice, good, reliable, but powerful and potentially dangerous if provoked member of the world community. So you, uh, yeah. you see a parade as a potential good sign? No, no, no. But, but a sign of good, good intentions from North Korea? No. no, they want to show that while they're engaging, yeah. they will keep nuclear and missile program alive. And it's something you're not going to compromise. And it's also, also a way to drive the wedge between United States and South Korea, yeah. because Americans are going to be annoyed by the parade and they will be more annoyed because next day the South Korean leaders will be shaking hands and smiling to the North Korean leaders. 
Why is this wedge so important to uh, the North Korean government? Because you always have to divide your enemies. And for the North Korean government, the world is the enemy. They were always playing Russians against Chinese, Chinese against Russians, South Koreans against Americans, Americans against Chinese, and the list is quite long. I see. Um, now, it's possible that uh, Kim Yo-jong, the younger sister of Kim Jong-un, might be present at both the military parade today and the opening ceremony of the Olympics tomorrow. Uh, is she a, a powerful figure in, in the North Korean? I mean, it's a little bit of criminology here, I know, yes. but uh, what, what do we know about her? I don't know. I not know nothing about her. Okay. Well, uh, I, I see that she is reasonably prominent, but all the stories which are so beloved by the you know, chief editors of major newspapers or spy masters worldwide, yeah. I believe that... Even if some of the stories are true, we have no way to know which stories are true and which are false, so it's better avoid unnecessary speculations. Now, uh, Kim Jong-nam, who's here, he's, uh, what, approximately 90 years old, and he's the only person who's still in the North Korean government who has worked under Kim Il-sung, Kim Jong-il, and Kim Uh Jong-un. Is that correct? Yes, Uh, but he is pretty much a figurehead. Uh, He has little, if any actual power, but it's a ceremonial quasi-head of state. Technically, Kim Jong-un is the head of state, but for the ceremonial purposes, they have this kind of uh, senior figure without power, but with a great deal of, you know, kind of official symbolism attached. There is some expectation or speculation in the South Korean media that he, Kim Jong-nam, might be carrying a message or uh, a letter from Kim Jong-un to President Moon. Quite possible, quite possible. He, uh, Kim Jong-nam is not in position to negotiate anything, uh, but he is good enough to deliver a letter. Yeah, well, what do you imagine, I mean, what could North Korea be offering to South Korea right now? I have no idea. Uh, they will be pushing for more cooperation, partially because they need it, partially because they want again to drive the wedge between South Koreans and yeah. the United States. And. Uh, What's your current assessment of the uh, the South Korean administration under President Moon? Uh, will will he be amenable to uh, no to that? He has very little choice. His power base and his activist supporters oh. are rem- slightly anti-American. Slightly, they used to be seriously anti-American ten years ago. Now they are just slightly anti-American. But if uh, at the same time he can do very little, he understands that in the current situation it's vital for South Korea to maintain the alliance with the United States. And he cannot do anything which would challenge such an alliance. Because if it happens, he would face a rising China, he would face sort of increasingly difficult Japan Mm. on his own. He is also afraid that a challenge to the US strategic hegemony in the region will be punished by Washington by some kind of economic countermeasures. Above all, possible revision of the Free Trade Agreement, FTA. That's under discussion now, isn't it? Yes, it's been discussed and it's quite clear that if uh, South Korea does something which goes against the hard line of President Trump, it's much more likely to happen. 
And the small dirty secret of the FTA is very simple. Even though South Korean nationalists, uh, including people of basically uh, President Moon's party, have made some political capital by describing the FTA as a kind of neo-colonialist agreement, blah, blah, blah. Secretly, every Korean knows that Donald Trump is correct when he says that this agreement is more profitable, is biased in South Korea's favor. So it's not a win-win. Well, it's a win-win probably, but South Koreans are winning more. They're winning more, I see. Okay. So you, and they know it, even so, though they are going to protest it very loudly. So you see President Moon as being a, a, a pragmatist rather than an ideologist. Of course he and, is. And that's why he will remain uh, as close as possible to, uh, to Washington. To Washington it's not be, it's against his own beliefs because he would like to have, you know, as uh, actually, I just heard a smart, rem- very good remark by Peter Ward, yeah. a rising star in the North Korean studies, my former student long time ago, well, not so long time ago, but he's a fast rising star. He said that in, North, uh, in South Korea, uh, Moon's party currently in power, they, uh, their attitude to the United States is a bit like French attitude to the United States, <laughs> while yes, the opposition attitude is a bit like the British attitude to the United States. I think it's a very good comparison. So these people are not quite anti-American. They are not anti-American, but they would like to keep some distance. Right. But their opponents would like to be currently in a position. They are unconditionally pro-American. They are happy to be, if you like, a younger brother of Uncle Sam, and mm-hmm. they are very proud of it. I see. So we will not be seeing, or we will not likely see, a second uh, sunshine policy under President Moon. Uh, Donald Trump will never allow it. Right. And for President Moon, uh, real economic relations and strategic alliance with the United States mm-hmm. is significantly more important than any improvement of relations with North Korea, right. especially because such an improvement is going to be costly because no matter how loudly you say it's a mutually profitable uh, reciprocity-based cooperation and trade, it's not. So far, nearly all economic engagement with North Korea have been aid in disguise. So North Koreans were getting much more and mm-hmm. most of these grant cooperation projects would be simply impossible without subsidies from foreign budgets above all from the South Korean taxpayers. So uh, the uh, Kaesong Industrial Park and the uh, Kumgangsan Tourism yeah. Project, they will not likely reopen again in the near future? Unfortunately not. Mm-hmm. I would like to see them open, but it's not going to happen. Why would you like to see them open again? Because I see what they are living through is a madness. Uh, because even uh, if there is... A, well, first of all, it might end in a war. Sorry, what would end in a war? The current situation. Oh, the current situation. Uh, it's quite possible that Americans will really use military measures, they will deliver limited strike, and it will lead to escalation, and we are going to see something we have never seen, well, we have, we have not seen for many decades. A large-scale regular war, perhaps even with the use of nuclear weapons and weapons of mass destruction, in a densely populated, industrially developed area. I should point out to listeners that we are in Seoul, the capital of South Korea. Uh, Neither you nor I would like to see any kind of 
war, conventional or otherwise, on the Korean Peninsula. How likely do you think that uh, possibility is right now? I don't know. It's possible. It's, I would say, probability of the U.S. military action yeah. is basically higher than at any point over last, say, 50 years. Goodness. And is that because of the current uh, administration? Yes. And it's also because of North Korea's ICBM program. Uh, because on one hand, North Koreans are just about to become the world's third country after Russia and China, mm-hmm. which is capable of delivering nuclear strike to any American city. And this is the first reason. And second, that this is happening when Donald Trump is in the White House and he has made North Korea a very important part of his foreign policy agenda and it means that he is going to take it personally and, well, if he takes something personally, well, it's it's a trouble. I want to uh, finish up our uh, podcast discussion today by talking about uh, North Korea's negotiating style. You've been watching North Korea uh-huh. for many decades. There are some people who say that North Korea's negotiation style with the United States and with South Korea is like a big cycle, that it uh-huh. starts off with uh, creating a conflict, uh-huh. escalating that, that conflict, oh, sorry, creating a crisis, escalating that crisis, offering some kind of a deal, long talks to work out what that deal is, things get better for a while, and then we go back to the beginning again. Can you tell us a bit about absolutely, what you're Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, I, I, I basically myself have said it countless times. Um, there is one pro- thing which is, however, not always noticed. There are large gaps, might be large gaps between this cycle. Once North, first, indeed, North Korea needs something. They provoke a crisis, they raise the stakes, they start negotiations, they squeeze what they want from the opposite side, more or less what they want, and then they can go straight to provoking another crisis. It does happen. But more frequently, they are happy, content for a while. Mm -hmm. They live with what they got for years to come, sometimes even many years. And then when they decide that it's time to uh, get something else, something different or just more of the same, they again push the button and restart the cycle. However, what is important, over the last 10 years, this cycle is seemingly not working. It used to be the negotiation strategy from, well, the 70s, if not 60s, 70s maybe, to, say, roughly 2008-2009, and then 2010 maybe, and then I noticed that this cycle ceased to be effective. I think the major reason is that there kind of opposite numbers, both in the United States and other places, have learned the lesson and they are much more reluctant to panic when the stakes are going up and they are much more reluctant to give concessions when North Koreans are switching to the broad smile face. So it's not probably working as well as it used to, but to an extent it's probably still working, not as efficient as it used to be. What do you see as uh, North Korea's immediate goal? What does it want right now from this current cycle of negotiations? Uh, Obviously they are a bit terrified by Donald Trump. 
When they made the statement in late November that their, uh, you know, nuclear missile development is complete, it was a face-saving way to say that they are not going to have more nuclear tests and missile launches for the time being. They could not say that they are doing it because they are terrified of American attack, which might be provoked by such tests and launches. Yeah. But because they said, they basically said, look, we have done it, there is, therefore there is no need for more tests, which is not true because technically speaking, they are close, but they are not there yet, and they do need additional tests, a lot of additional testing ah. actually. But they tests so of, of missiles or tests of, of bombs? Of course, ICBM. No, bombs they have probably reliable. Well, uh, the, missiles. The miliarization is that? We don't know. Okay. Again, call somebody from the military intelligence of any major power, they will probably brief you. I'm not in position to. Okay, but more but, missile tests are necessary. Yes, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, it's necessary for the missile test for the ICBM. And uh, they are obviously sort of terrified by the reaction, basically by Trump's behavior. Mm -hmm. In this regard, Trump's madman policy is working. Nobody knows for sure whether President Trump is really going to attack or he's just bluffing. Nobody knows. But everybody prefers to be cautious and sort of assumes, everybody sort of assumes that Trump is not bluffing. Therefore, we face what we are facing now, and North Koreans are trying to basically decrease the tension in order to win some time. Probably they will stop the tests for a time being, just to not to provoke Americans to decrease the probability of an American strike, because they know that such a strike is going to be devastating, and if it ends in an open war, they will probably lose it. But how do we reconcile that, Professor Lankov, with... Uh the parade that's happening right now, even as we speak. Uh, Uh, I think it's a mistake from their point of view. They should not do it. But obviously they want still to make a point that no matter what, they are nuclear power, they are not terrified. Have I been Kim Jong-un or his advice? I would advise him not to do it right now. So you're saying that on the one hand, they want to reduce tensions and avoid a risk of an actual military uh, conflict with America, with Washington. But on the other hand, they want to show, hey, we're a nuclear power and and we're we're not going to change. Not going to change. I would probably uh, basically I would not uh, make such a statement right now in such a way but well it's their choice and so that's their short-term goal what do you believe is the long-term goal um, you know 10 years and beyond big question Uh, we have two options two possible options which are not mutually exclusive maybe the North Koreans themselves are not certain what they want to achieve On the short run, they probably just want to have a secure deterrence. They want to be certain that they are capable of hitting the United States with a nuclear-armed intercontinental ballistic missile. Any point in the United States, up to Florida. Uh, What will they have next? It's possible they will be content with such a situation and will switch their resources on to, uh, towards economic growth. They need uh, fast economic growth to ensure regime stability because they are lagging so much behind all their neighbors. And the situation is improving, as I have said, but if they invest more money into you know, infrastructure, electricity, roads, it will help tremon- tremendously. The economy is driven by capitalists, by the entrepreneurs, by the private capital now, but Infrastructure is an issue, a huge issue. So it's one option. 
Second option is that probably Kim Jong-un wants to finish the unfinished business of his grandfather, and he does dream about conquest of the South. Maybe not necessarily conquest, but he hopes that now, when he has nuclear weapons, he can basically limit the US participation. He probably can deprive South Korea of the US nuclear umbrella, and then use it to dictate his conditions to Seoul. Because, well, you know, now South Koreans have adopted similar to what basically French used to feel. Uh, Charles de Gaulle, the president or president of France in the 1960s, said um, that he is not sure whether Americans are willing to sacrifice New York to save Paris. Now South Koreans can say that they are not sure whether Americans are going to sacrifice San Francisco mm -hmm. to save Seoul. Therefore, from this North Korean point of view, there is a probability that some Americans will not dare to actively counter the North Korean pressure, yeah. that South Koreans will bow to the pressure and accept some conditions which will slowly, partially deprive South Korea of its sovereignty and lead, if not necessary, to the conquest of the South, but to a kind of North Korean control. Personally, I believe it's not going to happen, but he might entertain such a dream too. And if this is the case, it's quite risky. Right now, we don't know whether it's for offense or whether it's sort of for expansion or for defense. I'm inclined to believe it's largely for defense, but I'm not 100% sure. This idea of, uh, of a, an enforced unification of, of the South, with the South, uh, this uh, the concept of a confederation has been mentioned many times over the decades. Yes. Is that is that a system that you think uh, would sufficiently fulfil Kim Jong Un's dream? If that is as his a dream, as a trend, yes. If he has such a dream, it will be good as a transitional phase. But he probably will aim at more control. He, he confederation with uh, with South Korea's freedom of action be, being restrained is good for him, but um, he will probably ask for more. But wouldn't it be dangerous for Kim Jong Un to allow his population to mingle freely with the South Korean population? It will be very dangerous, and this is one of many arguments people who reject such possibility uh, usually cite. And I have such argument at home every day, pretty uh, much every second day, because my wife is also an Oscarian specialist, and yeah. she believes that it's not going to happen because of many reasons. And the major reason, indeed, uh, South Korea is basically a piece of pie too large to be digested mm. for North Korea, which is probably true indeed. But, uh, but uh, even if it's not possible, even if he is not even going to have a goal, right now it's quite still possible that he's some that this is something he is dreaming about. But my personal hope is that he it's not what he wants, and he will probably I'm not sure, but I hope, and it's quite possible indeed, that he will be probably quite content with uh, the use of this his new new military might uh, for largely defense of himself and his regime. Or his country depends depends on what you think. Fascinating. Well, we uh, we look forward to finding out uh, what will happen in the coming year. I hope to speak to you again very soon, Professor Lankov. We thank you today for your time uh, on this uh, podcast, this very first podcast for NK News. I've been your host, Jacko Zwetslut, and I'll be back again next week with another podcast. Thank you very much for listening. <laughs>